Welcome to Sideline Sleuths, a true crime podcast all about the tragic yet fascinating cases no one can seem to get enough of. I'm Megan. And I'm Jasmine. We're so glad you're listening. If you like being an armchair detective, you'll love being a Sideline Sleuth. Normally, I choose cases that took place sometime in the 2000s. And I don't know why. I didn't really mean to do it at first. It just happened that way. And now I consciously do it. But today's case is from the mid-90s. I picked this case... Well, I didn't really. This case was suggested to us by a co-worker, Barb. Hi, Barb. Favorite, best person around. Shout out to Love her. But I picked this case for today's episode because tomorrow is the 25th anniversary of it. On June 27th, 1995, a young woman named Jody Hoosentrude was abducted from the parking lot of her apartment complex. She has never been found. Why would someone want to harm her? I've mentioned that we want to cover a case from all 50 states, and we're working on it, so thank you for all of your suggestions when you send in cases from states where you live. It really does help. And today's story takes place in Iowa, and this is our first Iowa case. So here's what we know. Jody Husentrude was born in June of 1968 in Minnesota. So when she went missing, she had just celebrated her 27th birthday a few weeks prior. She was 5 feet 3 inches tall and weighed 120 pounds. She's a tiny thing. Yeah. She was working as a news anchor for a CBS affiliate called KIMT in Mason City, Iowa at the time of her disappearance. She joined the station in 1993, but at the time that she went missing, it had been reported that she was looking to leave and join a bigger market. As a news anchor, she had to be at work really early. I think her time was like 2.30 in the morning. I don't think that's super unusual. Yeah. So at 4 a.m. on June 27th, it was a Tuesday, KMT producer Amy Coons noticed that Jody hadn't made it in yet, so she decided to call her apartment. And Jody answered. She told Amy that she had overslept, but that she was about to leave her apartment in Hedges Station. Wow. She lived just a few minutes away. That's not what I was expecting you to say. So when 6 a.m. arrived and Jody still hadn't made it in, Amy had to fill in for her on the station's morning show, Daybreak. Around 7 a.m., the staff at KAMT reported Jody's absence to the Mason City Police. The police went to Jody's apartment complex and found her Mazda Miata still there. Evidence discovered at the scene suggested that there had been some sort of struggle near her vehicle. Her personal items, including a bent car key, were found strewn around. What? I uh, know, like, got her Bent car uh, She was, like, probably trying to put really the key in the door. Violent, yeah. right? Other items they found included her high heels, her blow dryer, a bottle of hairspray, and a pair of earrings. She's so, like, a new, like... Yeah. <laughs> she's gonna get ready at yeah, the, the station. station. Police also reportedly found an unidentified palm print on Jody's car. In May of 2001, she was legally declared dead. So... That's a really ominous scene. Yeah, like, I'll be right there. I'm leaving right now. She lived, like, five minutes away, they said. So someone was waiting on her. Waiting for her. Can you imagine, like, just your apartment complex, and in five minutes, whatever, two minutes that you're going to be in the parking lot, that's the opportunity somebody takes? I read one thing that said her car was probably, like, 12 steps from her building. Somebody was lurking. Yeah. So... Oh, man, that just makes me totally terrified. Yeah, I'm really glad I have a garage. I'm really glad I'm in quarantine and I'm going to (laughs) wear So, the investigation. On July 1st, police held a press conference, and for the first time, they called her disappearance and abduction. 
They announced a reward fund of $11,000, but by the one-year anniversary of her disappearance, that fund had climbed to around $34,000. Also during that July 1st news conference, police revealed their interest in locating or identifying a mid-80s model white Ford van. And here's where they got that information. Investigators interviewed some of Jody's neighbors, and at least three people who also lived in her complex said that they heard screams around the time that Jody would have been leaving for work, considering her phone call with Amy that morning. Wow. But unfortunately, none of them called the police when they heard those screams. I don't. I wonder how much I should call the police when I hear screams yeah. in this day and age. But then sometimes I'm like, I don't want like, I don't want to take them away from a real emergency if this is nothing. But how do you know it's nothing? So. Additionally, a man named Randy Linderman, who lived on the same street as Jody's apartment complex and drove by it daily, reported seeing a white van parked by Jody's building with its lights on around that same time that Jody would have been leaving. Randy couldn't tell if the engine was running, but he did see that the van's front parking lights were turned on, but the headlights were off. He didn't see a driver or anyone else inside or around the vehicle. He puts the timeline at like 3.50 a.m., and Amy saying she called at four. So that still seems so weird. Like you're idling for, yeah. I don't know, close to an hour? I'm just waiting? Well, she was supposed to be at work at like 2.30. You're right. So like, how long were they sitting in that parking lot? It's really creepy. But most people are asleep on a Tuesday morning. Yeah. for even a weird, suspicious van yeah. at that time. Randy Linderbing called the police later that day after hearing about Jody's abduction. His tip was taken seriously, and police quickly determined that no one who lived in Jody's apartment complex was a registered owner of a van like the one that Randy saw that morning. By mid-afternoon, an alert had been issued for any van matching its description. Despite how much time has passed, Randy's account of what he saw never changed. In 2019, he said, quote, It was a white Ford Econoline van you know that that's like the utility yeah. ones like the right the, like the rapey ones yeah oh that was exactly what i was gonna say but i was like yeah. is anybody gonna know what i'm talking the about and of van, course yeah. you my crime yeah. soulmate yeah. no <laughs> so he said quote i know my vehicles end quote he has also consistently put the timeline at 3 50 a.m when he saw it however nothing ever came from that and the van was never identified another person a woman named connie years later said that she was living in a home directly across the street from Jody's building in June of 1995. And on that morning, she saw a similar light-colored van parked on the street outside of the complex entrance facing south. It was not in the parking lot, like Randy recalled. In an interview posted on findjody.com, Connie said, quote, I remember 4 to 4.30 a.m. hearing a car door. I never heard it before. The street was really, really quiet. I saw what looked to be a white or a light gray van on the street, not in the parking lot, but on the street. I really didn't think too much about it, and I didn't see any people. As I was falling back asleep, I heard another door close. When I woke up two hours later, the van was gone. End quote. The article went on to say that, quote, Connie says it was unusual for any vehicle to be parked on the street at all, especially so early in the morning. She believes one of the car door sounds she heard may have been the sound of the van's rear hatch doors closing. End quote. Randy's sighting of the van is the only thing that connects it potentially to Jody's abduction. Connie's account came out years later. But truthfully... Yeah. yeah. That's really weird if it came out. How's your memory years and years yeah. later? Why didn't you, Why didn't you say something at the sooner? Time? Yeah. This also reminds me of something else, but go ahead and say what you were going to say. You can say what you are going to say. It's fine. 
Uh, I was going to say, like, I remember the D.C. sniper case and, like, how they were like, it's a white, it's a white truck or a white van, whatever they said, mm-hmm. on, like, how it wasn't. And oh, so, yeah. like, they spent all this time looking for the wrong thing. And, like, I mean, like, even if you saw a van at the time, it doesn't mean necessarily have yeah. anything to do with that. So, it's kind of, it's... We talk- so, the Batner serial killer, Derek Todd Lee, because they're both, the DC sniper and him are both from Batners. We talked about this in episode one. It's not a very good episode, but whatever. Um, they said that he drove, he was a white man driving a white, like, Ford F-150. So, mm-hmm. everybody was, like, looking for him. And Derek Todd Lee's a black dude. So. Yeah, they're just, it's just misdirection. Yeah. Unfortunately. Faulty memories, It's taken so long. To- yeah. But years later, she's like, yeah, I also saw a van. Chabu. Yeah. Be quiet. And she just online, just typing. You don't go to the police. Yeah, I don't know if she ever went to the police or if this was only said in an interview with the people from Fine Jody. Oh, okay. So, truthfully, no one knows what Jody's captor or captors were driving that day. Randy's sighting couldn't have lasted more than 20 seconds, and he knows that there's no way for sure to know if it's even connected to Jody's disappearance. That was just, like, the closest thing they had. Was yeah, the only lead they had. But you have no... We don't know if it's... It could be totally random. I'm just, like, wondering about that palm print, though. Yeah. That's like, it's been some time... Anyway, and I can't stop thinking about the bent key. That's creepy. Yeah, that's really scary. And she's like kind of a local celebrity, right? She is a local celebrity, yeah. She was cute, yeah. She was very cute. So to help with the investigation, police created a timeline of Jody's whereabouts and activities in the days leading up to her abduction. Remember, Jody was abducted on a Tuesday morning. So the weekend before, she went on a water skiing trip with some friends in Iowa City. Those friends included several women, a man named John Van Sice who we will talk about later, and John's son, who was a college student at the time that this happened. On that Saturday, Jody and her friend Annie spent some time on another boat with two men who they had just met, and at some point the pair were videotaped. And when I read that, I was like, ooh. But it wasn't like in a scandalous way. It was just like there was some recording. Yeah, like like in today's age, if you're on a boat trip, you're going to record something on Snapchat. Like you just are. So this was like 1995 Snapchat. They were... There was just yeah. some random recording. And according to Annie, the girls were on the boat less than an hour, and she didn't even think that those guys even knew who Jody was. Like, they didn't know she was a news anchor or anything. Okay. And they just thought she was cute, right? Yeah. No information was exchanged between the groups, and there were no plans to connect with those guys again in the future. Annie told police about the encounter, and they talked to those individuals. So, like, they squared that away, like, really early they on. That that was... That was what happened that weekend, but, like, they weren't connected. But Jody wrote about how much fun she had on the trip in her journal. Journals? I feel like for no reason other than the fact that they might lead to some some clues. Clues if you go missing. I think they're good to have. So I kind of, I used to have a live journal. Did you have a live journal? Or, like, a Zanga or something? I had both. I had a live journal, and I had that for so long, like... No, I remember my screen name and everything. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But it was like, it came from a All-American Reject song. That's how cool I am. <laughs> you were so awesome. <laughs> I had like a little emo period. Like oh, a duct tape person. That was everything. teenage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Early 2000s. Yeah. It was, what a time to be alive. <laughs> so, <laughs> good times. So, that's the weekend before. But the day before she went missing, she played in the Mason City Chamber of Commerce golf tournament at Highland Park Golf Course, and then later that evening, she attended an awards dinner for the tournament at the Mason City Country Club. She's she, a really busy life. Yeah, she was a skilled golfer, and on her high school team, she like they won state like two years, I think, when she was on oh, the wow. team, so she was like... Accomplished. Yeah. 
She is believed to have been participating in these events from 3.15 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Monday, June 26, 1995. She said, get up and go to work at right? 2 a.m.? But a whole lot of people said she was like a night owl, and they'd always be like, Jody, you have to be on the news. And she's like, hmm, I got I, it. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Like, there's life to be lived. So she was... She didn't care. Yeah, she wasn't yeah, phased. But she was okay. also, like, young. Like, I can't hang. <laughs> I'm old, so. I'm like, it's 8 o'clock already? Oh, yeah. I better go to bed. I like Where's my blankie? I went to sleep at, like, 9.45. Sounds yeah, divine. I'm on the downhill slide to Grandma. So, at some point that day, on June 26th, I'm not sure when, though, but I think it was after the awards dinner, so sometime after 8 p.m., she went to John Van Sice's house. That's oh, the guy with the boat. That but they didn't about. have planes to hang out. No, no. Oh. So she, her and her friends and John and his son went on this trip together. They met two randos. Oh, dang. My so, so John is up. her actual friend. Okay, okay. So <laughs> after the awards dinner, she went to his house because he wanted to show her this homemade videotape of her birthday celebration that he had arranged for her earlier that month. So like... Now we could just watch it on our phone in real time, but he had to be like, come over and watch the video we made from your birthday party. Okay. So she did that. And then we know she made it home because she called a friend that night and because she answered that 4 a.m. call from Amy the next morning saying she overslept. So, but John arranged a birthday party for her, had a video, wanted her to come over and see it, took her on a water skiing trip. Like, he's just super involved in Jody's life. Okay. A 2017 post on findjody.com is entitled, quote, Was Jody being antagonized the day before her disappearance? End quote. So, the findjody.com team interviewed some other people who participated in that tournament, and they said Jody told them she was planning on changing her phone number the next day because she had been getting, quote, nasty and naughty anonymous calls. That also sounds horrifying. Yeah. So, like, the next, she's like, I'm going to change my number tomorrow. And then tomorrow she gets abducted. What on earth? But the golfers, so they didn't want to be named, but the article said that, quote, Jody didn't seem overly concerned about the calls, conceding that they were an annoyance, but that they kind of went with the territory of being a local television news anchor, end quote. I don't know. I don't know. Like that's not a territory I would necessarily want to. Not at all. And I, that's what, what kind of like how sucky does it have to be that you have to just like make a deal and being harassed. Yeah. So, the individuals who organized the golf tournament, as well as other golfers in attendance, described Jody as being upbeat, and no one recalled anyone present giving her a hard time. So, but it was something was going on enough for her to tell them she needed to change her number. Yeah. So she just, maybe she just brought it up like, oh, this is so annoying what's been going on. But it wasn't necessarily, like, happening right then. Or it wasn't something she wanted to, like, file a police report yeah. for. Still, if it was, mm-hmm. like, it came with the territory, I'd still file a police yeah, report. Yeah, So the golfer said that Jody told them she was going home after the dinner because she had to be up early for work. And then, as you know, she overslept, but she spoke to her producer at 4 a.m. And then she still never made it into work. So. I would want to interview her uh, colleague and be like, did she sound distressed? Like, was she faking it? I don't know. I think I take another. I watched too much. TV. I think it was totally just like she got blindsided in the parking lot. So uh, and she's already in a rush, or she's not. Yeah, she's coming out like, like yeah, surroundings. yeah. Oh Scared. gosh, I'm in a rush everywhere I go. Yeah, me out. <laughs> so Jody's sister Joanne said that when Jody took the job in Mason City, nobody was worried. It's not a large city, so they thought it was safe. The 2010 census has Mason City's population at, like, 28,000 people, 
and that was a decline of about 1,000 people from the 1990 census. So when Jody got abducted, there was not even 30,000 people who lived there. So on July 6th, 1995, a local martial arts instructor came forward and said that Jody had attended a self-defense course he taught in March. He said that she told him, quote, she had an incident a few months back that she wasn't comfortable with, end quote. Well, that could mean anything. So there's, but there's like a feeling of being unsafe, at least. And then just getting these phone calls. See, I'm just, I'm like level 10 paranoid. This is why I'm glad I'm not like super cute. Like, same. Like, <laughs> moderately cute. Have you, you seen keep the going. thing that's like, stay a little fat because it's harder to get like kidnapped? Like, <laughs> that's my plan. <laughs> because... What are the algorithms on your social media? <laughs> I have questions. <laughs> yeah, it's like a wide spectrum. <laughs> My sister's like, I feel like you have a totally different experience on Facebook than I do. And I was like, facts. I love it. So her sister, Joanne, said that by the fall of 1994, so remember she started in 93, so like a year and a half later, Jody felt unsafe in Mason City. An ABC wow. News article said, quote, Who's in truth feared one viewer was taking the sense of intimacy too far. She was convinced a suspicious van was following her, <gasps> end quote. A suspicious fan, say no more. Dun, dun, dun. Her sister is quoted in the article as saying, she got very, very nervous and was even crying when she called my mom on the phone. So after that, she started taking even more precautions, end quote. Apparently, she was so rattled by this that she told her fears to the local police. Oh, I was saying she didn't and she did. Lieutenant Frank Starnes said, quote, she thought she was being followed one morning on her way to work and she made us aware of that right away. And we gave her escorts a few times after that. And no problems. No of course further no problems. problems. Police are there. Yeah. Gosh, it's so creepy. So she was aware of it on the way to work before. Until yeah. Until she's on her way to work. I mean, and she was just in a hurry. Went down. Oh, my goodness. It makes me want to... Like, I'm already hypervigilant. I'm, like, probably less now that I'm in a garage. And I'm already safely in my vehicle before I even open the door. But, like, now I'm going to be, like, keys between each of my fingers so I can, like, Gosh. jab you. I don't know. True crime makes me paranoid. Yeah, yeah. There have been moments in my life where I literally have to, like, stop listening because I'm, like, jumping at yeah. everything near me. So you're right. In September of 1995, so just a few months after Jody's abduction, her family hired private investigators out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Remember, they're from Minnesota. And those guys enlisted the assistance of Omaha, Nebraska private investigator Doug Jossa. The private investigators appeared on several national television shows, including America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. In November of 1995, they, as well as the members of Jody's family, traveled to Los Angeles to meet with three prominent psychics for the pilot of a TV show called Psychic Detectives. According to reports, each show generated new leads, but nothing concrete ever came from those TV appearances. Since then, her story has been featured other places, including Up and Vanished on Oxygen and 2020. Wow. So... Police collected Jody's journal from her apartment during the investigation. That's how we knew she had fun on the water skiing trip. Well, in early June of 2008, so that's like 13 years later, photocopies of the 84 pages in that journal were anonymously mailed to a local newspaper, the Mason City Globe Gazette. What do you mean anonymously? It has to be a cop, right? Yes. So okay. <laughs> they received the pages in a large envelope with no return address and a postmark of June 4th from Waterloo, Iowa. Pay me some detective money, please. Yeah, you're an <laughs> investigative consultant. <laughs> so Waterloo and Mason City are about 80, 81 miles apart. The original journal had been in the possession of law enforcement since the investigation began. And immediately this was like weird and made people hopeful that the case would be solved. Like, mm -hmm. 
I don't know, like the dirt, there was two copies of the journal or like the, the killer of Dr. Hadley. Like nobody has two copies of their <laughs> journal, but whatever. Either way, they're like, way. interest was peaked. But within days, Mason City Police reported that the sender had been identified as the wife of the former Mason City Police Chief. Wow. Oh, so she just was like, I want this to be solved. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. An article said that, quote, the former chief had taken a copy of the journal home when he left office, but the police gave no motive as to why the woman had sent it to the newspaper, end quote. Which is just, like, weird. And first off, yeah, why do you get to take a copy of it when you retire? Yeah, that's... you retire, buddy? Leap? Are you... I don't understand. Are you just waiting for somebody to ask you questions why about this you... case? Yeah. Is it the only, like, loose end? Is it, like, real? are you feeling very personally connected to it because you didn't solve it or something when you I were there? I can see how that could happen. That. But, but like... I don't see how the wife got it and then is sending it around. And, like, her husband had to be like, did you do this? <laughs> because, like... He has it, you know? I, don't know? I mean, he's a detective. He knew immediately. Yeah, he knew she did it. It's like, in May of 1996, 100 volunteers searched an area in the county looking for clues, but no significant evidence pertaining to the case was located. To date, police and private investigators have conducted more than 1,000 interviews, but they do not have a suspect. However, there are some persons of interest. Back in the beginning of this investigation, John Lang, a special agent with the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, said it was clear that the person responsible had been watching Jody and was familiar with her patterns of behavior. For sure. Mike Kitzmiller with the FBI said, quote, If it was anybody but her, because she was a local news anchor, you could say it was a chance encounter. But you can't rule out the fact that someone was stalking her just because of who she was, end quote. So one of the most chilling things I read about this case was from one of the private investigators her family hired, and he said, quote, I can still see you where the car was parked and where the drag marks ended, 100 feet to the van, end quote. So someone was, like, watching, waiting for her, grabbed her, she wanted to get in her car, and then forcibly dragged her, leaving marks from the Miata to the van. Do you think it was, like, her shoes against the pavement? Like, that's how she was no really idea resisting. What it was. And then, obviously, really resisting because the key bent. Yeah, she, like, dropped her bag. and I don't, But, like, he, like... All this time later, he can still see it in his... Like, it's, like, burned into his brain, the drag marks. Gosh. Chills. According to findjody.com, some of the persons of interest associated with Jody's case owned vans at the time of her abduction, but none of those vans were white. So, I guess my geography sucks, because I didn't realize that Iowa and Minnesota were next to each other. (laughs) Like... I don't know if I could have pointed out Iowa on a map. Um, now I can, but anyway. Everybody's learning and growing. This registered sex offender named Thomas from Austin, Minnesota, which is like 50 miles from Mason City, owned a van in 1995 when Joey went missing, but it just wasn't a white van. Oh. And in 2004, it was revealed that his palm print didn't match the one taken from her Miata, but at the time, they were like, oh, he has a van, but wasn't him. Gosh, they were really... Region. Yeah, so, literally. Then Jody's friend, the one who took her out on the boat the weekend before she vanished and arranged a birthday party and showed her the footage that night, he also owned a van. John what? Van Sice. But what? his van was blue, and his van was like a drive-your-kids-to-soccer-practice van and not like a okay. rapey utility van. A minivan. So it didn't look like the van in Randy Linderman's sighting, but he still had a van. Or the and, random lady, probably. Yeah. Just forget that random lady. In two, yeah, in two thousand four, police searched the basement of a home where John Van Sice previously lived, but they didn't find anything. What? But he's obviously like on their radar. So, yeah. 
2017. I do think it's suspicious that he just happened to be, like, the last person with her that night. And then we know she made it home, though, but then she's gone the next day. And it just, he just gets weirder. So in 2017, a search warrant was issued for GPS data from two of John Van Sice's vehicles in relation to the Jody Who's Intrude case. But the weird thing is that neither of these existed in 1995. That's what I was going to say. Like one was a 1999 Honda and the other was a 2003 GMC, but they wanted to see if it had recently traveled to Iowa because he was now living in Arizona. So they wanted, like, tracking information to see if he was going back to Iowa for something. But this is, like, 2017, so this is, like... A long time. 22 years after. Why would he do that? Yeah. So a Globe Gazette article states that, quote, the warrant was sealed the same day, meaning no other information is publicly available about why the search was ordered or what was discovered. In October 2017, a judge ordered the documents to remain sealed for another year. The warrant is sealed because the investigation is ongoing, said the county's attorney, and that it's not unusual for search warrants in ongoing cases like Jody Hoosentrudes to be sealed. He said, quote, release of information included in the search warrant could jeopardize the Hoosentrude investigation, end quote. The Mason City Police Chief said that they had no comment about the warrant. So at the time the warrant was issued, John was 72 years old, which means he was like 20-something years older, older than, than Jody. Why was he, well... It all comes back to the fact that she was cute. She was real okay. cute. Today, he remains a person of interest in Jody's abduction, but he has, however, passed a polygraph test in relation to her disappearance. But, okay, so this is the thing where I was like, he just gets weirder. The little weird thing I learned is that John's boat, the one that he took everybody out on the weekend before Jody vanished, it was named after Jody. What? So he was just, like, real infatuated with it her. It sounds like it. Yeah, through her birthday party, made a special video recording. Wanted to watch it with her at night. Named her boat after her. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's nothing that says that like she felt the same way about him. I know nothing. they read her journal. But like, if she was like creeped out by him, I doubt she'd be going to his house late at night to watch a video, right. or going on his boat with her friends. Or so like, I don't think she, I don't think she probably thought he was the guy with the weird phone calls. Yeah, but that doesn't mean, mean that he's it not, wasn't Yeah, him. she just didn't think it. She is not a detective. But, I'm so glad I just said that. I didn't even mean to. This is totally not my script. She's not a detective, but she kind of sort of was, and that might actually be what got her abducted. Oh, so. This gets better and better. Thanks, Barb. Yeah, she, this is a great and episode. <laughs> so, there's something about this case that's happening, like, right now. Like, as recent as, like, today, it was in the news. So, there's this guy named Dustin Honkin. In 1993, he and his former girlfriend, Angela Johnson, killed two federal drug informants. And their bodies were found in graves near Mason City in the year 2000, after Dustin described the location to a jailhouse informant, because he's very smart. So, Dustin is actually responsible for five murders in Iowa. Well, what does he have to do with this? Well, it's widely believed by many people that Dustin knows who took Jody Hoosentrude. But he's scheduled to be executed on July 17th in Indiana. Oh and my that's gosh! that's what the news today was like, new execution date scheduled for just knocking the... Just around the corner. Yeah, so like, if he knows, they need to get this out of him. But anyway, Angela, ex-girlfriend, has publicly said that she knows that Dustin knows who's responsible for Jody's disappearance. And there is a, this is like a serious rabbit hole. There's 
a forum on findjody.com and this thread in it called Maybe More Than a Possibility details how Dustin might be connected to Jody's disappearance and it has a lot to do with this guy named Billy Pruin. So Billy was a friend of Jody's who was murdered in April of 1995. Okay. Initially, his death was ruled a suicide, but then later changed to undetermined. Three months before, two months before Jody goes missing. So Jody was apparently deeply troubled by Billy's death, and his friends and family didn't think it was a suicide. So, sideline sleuth, Jody was investigating it on her own because she didn't think... That she didn't think he, there's any way he killed himself. She thought he was murdered. So, according to friends and relatives of Jody, she could have possibly been abducted because she was investigating the circumstances surrounding his death, and that these Dustin Hawk and Angela Johnson people are connected to Billy's death. And, and then, that's why. Yeah. Take her out. So, if Dustin it's knows strange. something, they need to find out. Before it's too late. Because like a month away, he's going to be executed. Wow. So. This is a This is wild. Twists and turns. So people think that Jody must have found something out. Or was like going to find something out. Or they didn't want her to find something out. She isn't a journalist, so. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say that. I mean, she should be highly capable. Yeah. But that doesn't explain the weird phone calls. I feel like how can that be happening at the same time that other thing is happening? Are they all just coincidences? I don't. I mean, maybe. Or maybe the weird phone calls were to freak her out so she would like lay low or something. I don't know. I guess. In long and short, or I feel like. Chase her out of It's not Mason worth City. it to be a local news anchor. Yeah. Uh-uh. I don't want to tell you your weather so you can just. So earlier I read you this quote from Mason City officer Frank Starnes and I like misread his job title so I googled him and I came across some really interesting headlines. And I need you to know that I had no knowledge of this theory or this angle when I started researching this. And I don't want it to seem like I only like these cases. But where this is headed. (laughs) Of course, I was interested. The headline that caught my eye first was, quote, Former Mason City officer says police may have taken Jody Hoosentrout. Well, here's the thing, though. They knew her work route. They had escorted her on her work route. They no had one a, would be weirded out if a police car was, like, lurking. And they had a paper trail that somebody might have been stalking her. And actually, Randy said at first, Randy, the guy who saw the van, he thought it was a police van. What? Yeah. So, in a September 1st, 2011 oh. article from the Globe Gazette, they lay out what happened and why this officer is saying... The cops did it. So Maria Ohl was fired from MCPD in August of 2011. And she came forward to say that she had received information from an informant that two Mason City police officers and a retired state DCI agent may have been involved in the abduction and presumed death of Jody Hoosentrude. Maria said that she received this credible information implicating two officers, one being Frank Starnes. Maria said that she first got the information in 2007 and then received further information in 2009 that she reported this and nothing happened. She believes her termination from the department is because of that information. But I think the official reason they gave is that she was fired for mishandling the information because it was determined that 
quote, her violations of department policies included neglect of duty, insubordination, and interfering with an investigation, end quote. I think it was just that she didn't go through the proper channels. She used personal equipment to record the informant uh, and stuff. So she got fired for some like, technicalities about the information. Yeah, but that still seems really weird. Like if you got if you got good information, like yeah. why? Do you want the information or do you care how I recorded it? Yeah, I think I'm just like real suspicious right now. Of Considering like the climate of things? I mean, I always have been, but like, yeah. We have a track record of police misconduct cases. A 2011 article from The Courier states, Ole reportedly got information from an informant on the street in Mason City about police misconduct. The information was picked up on a recording in her squad car, which she later re-recorded personally. She also secretly recorded a conversation with the chief of police. So. That's that. That's what they're mad about? Yeah. That's the insubordination. If yeah. you ain't got nothing to hide, why is that weird? But I, I do understand, like, the trust dynamic in a in a. But, like, if you have nothing to hide, and he wasn't one of the three yeah. people that like, the informant even told whistle about. Whistleblowers should be able to blow the whistle. I agree. Maria further alleged that Mason City Police were also involved in a 1999 unsolved murder of a man named Gerald Best. So she was just like, y'all gonna fire me? I'm about to tell y'all everything. Mason City is 30,000 people. How do you have an unsolved disappearance and an unsolved murder, like, back-to-back, like, both in the mid-late 90s? There's a lot going on here. Wow. This is a whole nother uh, stone you turned over. So now we have John Van Syce. Mm-hmm. Infatuated boat creepy dude. The older. police older than Infatuated her by like twenty something years. Boat creepy dude. Police involvement theory. Uh-huh. And the Dr- druggy people. Or the Billy Pruin druggy people. Three potential things. Do you want to hear or, that? Or or just a random creeper. Doubt it was a random creeper, but it's a random stalker creeper. The creeper that was caught. Oh, just a random phone. stalker. It could be the phone call stalker guy. So yes, we yes. have four things. So <clears throat> anyway, DCI released a statement that there was no credible link between MCPD and DCI to Jody's disappearance, but a December 2016 opinion piece in the Northwest Iowa Review that was written by a state representative who was retiring suggested there was a cover-up by Mason city officials in Jody's disappearance. So who knows? Wow. It could to me, be. I just feel like it's wild because I feel like there's a lot of intertwined, like, you know, there's a lot of uh, vested interest in keeping things. Uh, hush, hush. Uh, again, a lot of mistrust right now. A lot of. A so lot of John Van Syce seemed real fishy to me until 2018. Some billboards were put up in town trying to drum up new leads. They had like a picture of Jody and a quote that said, Somebody knows something. Is it you? And then, in 2019, one of those billboards was later vandalized. It was spray-painted with the name Frank Starnes across it. <gasps> the cop. Well, it actually Wow! Said, somebody's a real rebel! Yeah. Respect. It actually said Frank Starnes Machine Shed, but I don't know what a machine shed is. That so. very But it was like Frank Starnes in like big letters and like machine shed in smaller font. But they were like, somebody knows something, is it you? And then they were like, Frank Starnes! Machine shed, but like machine shed is somebody's street name. Hmm. So pointing people Maybe in the that's right the informant. Yeah, that's the guy who knows the information about Frank Starnes. So I have no idea. It could be random this stalker, is a hot mess. John Van Syce, druggy people, or the cops. Like it's literally really every so angle of society. A, a desire to hurt this woman. And she seemed nice. Yeah. She was just pretty. 
I shared that 1990s pretty game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The bangs and everything. Oh, yeah. She was, she was so wholesome. Yeah. The Mesa City Police Department, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, private investigators, and the FBI are all still actively working on Jody Who's Intrude's disappearance. Tomorrow marks 25 years since she was abducted from the parking lot of her apartment complex. If you have any information about Jody's disappearance, please contact the Mason City Police Department at 641-421-3636 or the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigations, commonly referred to as DCI, at 515-725-6010. And you can also reach DCI by email at dciinfo at dps.state.ia.us. Thank you for listening to Sideline Sleuths. If you have any comments or questions about this case or just feedback about the show in general, you can find us online at facebook.com slash sidelinesleuths. And if you haven't already had the chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Facebook, or any social media or streaming platforms available.